All right, the letter that changed the world. This is part 63 in Romans. There's a subject that I'm, I'm really interested in uh, because I think there's such a misconception about it. Let me tell you what I think the misconception is. The idea that I hear expressed is there's, there's so many different doctrines and so many different ideas, and you end up with these different denominations, and, and wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be better if we didn't stress um, doctrines and teachings so much, and then we could all just have one big united church. Everybody could, we could hold things kind of loosely, but then nobody would be disagreeing with anybody. We just have a united church, one church where we'd all love each other. Uh, and it sounds great. I, I don't think it works. That's the first thing. And I don't think it's biblical, which is the most important thing. That's what I want to look at tonight. Why genuine spiritual unity, genuine spiritual unity must always be truth-based. The text I'm looking at, Romans 16, 17 and 18, we're in the last chapter. Paul writes and he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So there's people teaching things contrary to what Paul had taught. So what's the solution? If there are people there teaching something contrary to what Paul had taught, what does Paul expect? Avoid them. Last words of verse 17. 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Talk about that in a minute. And by smooth talk, and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord. Can you imagine now, after saying all those things, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I think there's a reason this particular passage, 17 to 20, is really important to understanding the whole letter of Romans. It's important for this reason. We've spent a number of weeks, quite a number of weeks on Sunday nights, going over Romans, especially 14 and 15, where Paul talks about the strong and the weak. Um, the, 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 the weak were those who still carried their Jewish heritage, the regulations of the old covenant. Uh, it was hard for them to leave those things behind when they came to Christ. The strong were those who either didn't come out of Judaism when they converted to Christ or came out with a deeper understanding that, that they didn't need to keep those strictures of the old covenant anymore if they were followers of Jesus Christ. So you have this this kind of division, and, and Paul takes two chapters to help these two groups to learn to kind of relate to each other properly. I mean, the weak, they aren't to judge the strong on the basis of their Jewish Old Covenant heritage, and the strong aren't to despise the weak, kind of mocking them for their Old Covenant legalism. And above all, probably, the, the strong are never, ever, to do anything in word or example that might lead weaker Christians to act against their conscience. 
And that's that phrase that we explain, whatever is not of faith is sin. And now I return to what I said a minute ago. Without, without Romans 16, 17 to 20, you might easily conclude from 14 and 15 that, that, that all Paul really cared about was unity, that he places unity above holiness. I mean, a careless reader might think that Paul was telling these Christians at Rome, weak and strong, just to learn to live and let live in matters of lifestyle. I mean, nobody knows all the truth anyway. Who has a corner on truth? Let's not be so dogmatic. And so you kind of see the danger, the ever-present danger of taking certain texts and just building a whole theology around them. When the whole picture of Romans is kind of taken and stitched together, you can see that Paul means there are some issues that are non-essential issues. The Bible doesn't place major emphasis on them. And on non-essentials, Unity, motive of heart, they're to rule the day. Because there are no vital doctrinal issues at stake in 14 and 15 of Romans, the, the, the overriding concern is the conscience of the weaker brother. The strong is never to cause the weaker brother or sister to act against conscience, even in non-essential issues, because somewhere down the road there'll be a really important issue, and that weaker brother or sister will have been trained to act against his or her conscience. Only it won't be a non-essential issue. It'll be a very important issue. Today's text, we sense a really different tone from Paul. There's a lot more edge in his words. I mean, look at that 17th verse. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So he knows that they're talking doctrine here. Paul makes it very clear. Avoid them. So those two verb phrases, watch out, 17, avoid them, 17. And we notice immediately there's nothing at all of a kind of live and let live in those words. Those are, those are watch out for troublemaker words. Watch out for different doctrine words. I mean, Paul is saying it is spiritually wrong to be indifferent about contrary doctrine. Paul says, I'm commanding alertness. I'm commanding a watch out. Don't let personal feelings, don't let sentiment keep you from watching out and don't let it keep you from avoiding. That's the word in the verse. Don't let personal sentiment or some kind of a desire for unity keep you from watching out for and avoiding those who want to take you in a different doctrinal direction than the gospel you heard from me. So, so I see this as the issue, because to increasing number of evangelicals, those words, however biblical, they don't ring comfortably with us anymore. I mean, they, they don't sound proper. They don't sound polite. The, the tolerant sort of progressive movement has made those biblical injunctions just sound kind of out to lunch and narrow-minded. We're almost embarrassed by them just a little bit. And it's because those words are so counterintuitive to our whole uh, cultural mindset that I think we need to study just a couple of principles really carefully. I think there are three of them I want to look at. One, 
know when truth, doctrinal truth, is being molested. I see that in the first part of verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. It's doctrine that he's talking about here, not just people they don't like. To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. I suppose, let's just start with what's the most obvious. Paul says there is such a thing as a knowable body of truth so that people can know when they're hearing something contrary to it. I mean, if you can't know the truth, you can never know what's contrary. So when Paul says, look out for things that are contrary to the doctrine that I taught, the implication is you can know the truth. So there's a knowable, observable body of doctrinal truth. Paul actually refers to this in another place. Romans 6, 17. Look at Paul's words. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart And here's the phrase, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Notice that word. There's a standard teaching. There's a standard doctrinal body. And by that he means there's a way of measuring when something is contrary. There's a way of knowing what the truth is. Or or the same idea from Paul again in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. He writes to young Timothy, pastor, and Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, look at, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Isn't that interesting? Guard the good deposit. It's talking about doctrinal truth. So there are words that are sound as opposed to unsound. And and this truth is recognizable enough that Timothy can guard the truth from error and distortion. And you see something else. We also see the doctrine of truth has to be precious because Paul tells Timothy it's worth guarding. If it didn't matter, if it wasn't important, if it wasn't precious, well, who cares? But he tells him it's worth defending. Here's again, here's another reference. I want to show you that this isn't some passing little thing. This is the heart of this this book that you carry to church every Sunday. Look at the words in Acts 20, 26 to 30. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's an interesting phrase, the whole counsel. So it's measurable. Paul can say, I didn't give you half of it, and I didn't give you more than was the counsel of God. I I recognize what the counsel is. I gave you all of it. I measured it out, the whole of it. That's really fascinating. 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So they're to care for the church of God. How? How are they going to care for the church? He's going to tell us. Which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves. So now you see, if you're going to protect the flock, flock like in a flock of sheep, which is significant because he's going to talk about wolves 
coming in, okay? Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What are they going to do? Are they going to kill these people? Are they going to carve them up? No. No, that's not the danger. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So the wolves are coming after the flock. How are they coming after the flock? They're coming with false teaching. Not denying the truth, twisting it. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Just modifying it a bit. To draw disciples after them. That's a great text. You see several of the same ideas repeated here. Paul declared truth so definable that he could know when he declared it. He didn't know everything about God. Nobody does. But he knew the contents, apparently, the whole counsel of God. Paul knew what that was. And he could be certain that he left nothing out. It's a knowable counsel of God. And then he tells us that these these ones are going to come later on speaking twisted things, putting a different spin. So don't miss the idea carried along in this text. You guard the flock by teaching the whole counsel of God. Paul says that's the best way to protect people. So in other words, here's, here, here's the key thought here. A love for truth and a love for people aren't opposites. A love for truth and a love for people are marriage partners. In fact, you don't love people unless you contend for sound doctrinal truth. You might think you love people, but you don't. Point number two, you never create unity in Christ by ignoring truth. Let me read some of these words again in our text. Uh, Romans 16, 17, and 18. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. If people are teaching this contrary doctrine, avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk, they flatter, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So this myth of of unity coming out of doctrinal pluralism, it, it thrives under this false assumption that as long as there are no truths to which everyone must give assent, then people will live in unity. If no one claims any truth as absolute, then no one else has to feel compelled to believe it. Well, that should make for peace. And because no one ever feels the threat to change his or her beliefs, we can all live in loving harmony together. Okay, that's the myth. But it doesn't work like that. Here's what I'd like you to do with me just for a minute. It's not a Bible verse. I want you just to pretend for a minute. Just imagine. Imagine a classroom, say a grade 11 classroom. Picture a teacher who's sort of preening over her open-mindedness, saying to her class, listen, don't ever be afraid to speak your views in this class. There are no bad ideas. There are no wrong views. No one is claiming absolute knowledge. Your views are just as valid as anybody else. Let's all share together. Now, many, many people would admire her approach. I mean, nothing grabs the heartstrings of the postmodern and progressive more than the relativizing of truth claims in the name of tolerance. But keep imagining. The scene changes. 
Now imagine a young student somewhere near the back of the room. She puts her hand up. She's troubled about something, and it, and it shows on her face. And so the teacher calls on her to speak. But she surprises everybody. Their mouths all drop as she says this. She says, I see that you're anxious to have broad participation in the class. And I see you're trying to encourage it by saying that no one has absolute truth, that everyone's views count, that everyone's ideas are equal. But if that's really the case, I think I'm going to quit this class and just go play tennis. I mean, if, if we've already decided that nobody has absolute truth, then while we all might want to share, why should I listen to anybody? I mean, if we already know no one's views carry absolute knowable truth that might correct my errors, why should we listen? Now, what I'm desperate to have everybody see in our text today is the difference of the biblical approach to truth and unity. Paul doesn't try to create unity by denying absolute, knowable, doctrinal truth. He seeks to build unity by establishing knowable, doctrinal truth. You can see the role doctrinal truth plays in uniting Christians by the striking way he words his plea, especially that 17th verse. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. He's talking about doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And so notice how Paul puts, he seems to put two things together that don't belong together. He's pleading the church to guard unity. We know that because he tells people, look out to those who cause divisions. So he, he's looking for unity. We don't want divisions, 17. We want unity. But then shockingly, he tells the church, what to do when they spot contrary doctrine in their ranks. And he says, avoid people like that. What? So what Paul tells them is they are to spot people who are causing disunity by false doctrine, and they're to separate from them. They're to stop division by dividing. And I just can't think of a clearer way for Paul to tell us how important doctrinal truth is to unity. It's only because doctrinal truth is the basis for unity that Paul says truth actually trumps unity that isn't based on sound doctrine. So in other words, when someone departs from the teaching of the apostles, Paul sees that as a greater threat to genuine unity than separating from false teaching. Significant, isn't it? I mean, Paul could have said, look, no... Who knows everything there is to know about God anyway? Let's just embrace mystery here together. I mean, he could have said there are so many things we don't know, but he doesn't go anywhere near any of those options. For the sake of genuine Christian truth-based unity, separate yourself from those who depart from apostolic teaching. Now I want to wrap this up. The third principle here. Placing biblical truth over outward unity will never be a popular choice. The te text I'm looking at is 18 to 20. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Just pause there for a minute. 
They're serving their own appetites. And we usually think of that as, I don't know, gluttony or some kind of sexual perversion. People with false doctrine, he's talking about that. They're, they're doing it to serve their own appetites. A- uh, appetites for influence. Appetites for popularity. Appetites for cultural acceptance. Appetite for the, the feel of cultural relevance. Those kind of appetites. The, the, the appetite to not appear narrow-minded or intolerant. The appetite to please everybody. So he says these people who depart from doctrine, they do it out of their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, 18, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So at least initially, false teachers always uh, lighten the load, broaden the approach. They do it through smooth talk, 18, flattery, 18. They do it out of their own appetites. I talked about that, 18. And what that means is it will never be popular. Listen, it will never be popular to oppose that kind of teaching. Naive people, 18, not my word, naive people will always be won over by the tolerance arguments. They'll always be won over by the unity arguments. They'll always say Jesus was just against organized religion and then use that to dish on the, the traditional church. It's, it's old arguing. It's been around for centuries. False teachers win followers with those kind of arguments. So this is why Paul stressed that, especially in the last days, he says it will be open season on truth in the church of Jesus Christ. We're almost done. I get that in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 4, where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's a, quite a charge there. Preach the word, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. Reprove and rebuke. He starts with two negative verbs, strangely. And exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Why does Timothy have to do this? For, so there's the connector in 13, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Endure means it, it takes time. You, you build an appetite for sound teaching. Doesn't always, it doesn't always uh, scratch where you itch immediately. And that's an interesting illustration because it's the very one Paul uses next. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander. Isn't that an interesting verb? Just it's not a denial. Just kind of wander off into myths. It's, I think it's easy to kind of miss the actual message of those verses. Paul's point isn't that people won't want to hear teaching in their churches in the last days. I mean, he says that, but that's not the point. It's that they won't want to hear their myths challenged and exposed in the last days. That's different. 
It's not that they won't want to hear anything. It's that they will think they have latched on to something better, more relevant, more contemporary, more tolerant than sound teaching, verse 3. And so that's why Paul has to encourage Timothy. It's going to be hard. He's trying to reinforce him with the kind of courage, patience. He even talks about patience. The courage, the patience, the strength that he knows it's going to take to do what Paul is telling these Christians in Rome to do, separate from Paul's teaching. This is the reason for Paul's comments about God crushing Satan in verses 19 and 20 of our text. Last thought. He says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the battle with Satan... Where is it fought? Where is it actually fought? How is it won? And I'm sure there are many manifestations of spiritual warfare in this age. But Paul is calling the church to awareness of one particular aspect of the struggle with Satan. Yeah, Satan. The struggle with Satan that they might be prone to overlook. You fight the devil when you stand for doctrinal truth. Doesn't feel like it all the time. You might feel narrow-minded. People will call you legalistic. You fight the devil when you stand for truth. God crushes Satan as you separate your church from false doctrine and false teachers. Not in non-essential matters, but in crucial doctrinal matters. And strangely, isn't it strange that Paul emphasizes the coming, verse 20, of the God of peace? I mean, at the end of this whole thing about about separating from false doctrine, guarding the flock from wolves as they twist the truth, God crushing Satan under their feet, the God of peace. When you divide from false teachers and false doctrine, the God of peace is pleased. So so just when we might be tempted to think otherwise, that it might be more loving and more peaceable to ignore all the differences and just do a group hug, Paul says the church can actually cherish truth with such a passion that it, it crushes Satan. It purifies the church, brings the God of peace. God who is pleased with unity is going to crush Satan under their feet. And any church that's in the business of helping crush Satan, it's the one I want to belong to. That's quite a study. It just kind of, you know, there's a lot of peaceable, smooth passages, and then you come to a few places in the Scriptures where it just kind of grabs you by the lapels and says, now pay attention to this. So we need to hear this. Let's pray together. Thank you again for your word. It, it, it comes with so many different uh, 
approaches to our mind and to our emotions. It, it speaks truth that's easy to grasp, easy to accept. It speaks truth that's increasingly countercultural, comes with an edge. And in all of it, we want to please our Lord Jesus Christ. Protect Cedarview Community Church from people who would twist sound doctrine. Help us to do it with patience. Help us to do it with humility. But help us to always honor the truth of Jesus Christ. Bless your church here and abroad. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Stay in the word. Know the truth. Join us for our prayer time.